Aaron and I want to start with a really big, heartfelt first bite thank you. We have been so encouraged by your kind word, your messages, your glowing reviews of First Bite. This has been a labor of love for the last year and a half, and we we are grateful for y'all being on the First Bite journey with us and supporting us because we I mean, we work full time and this is this is a full time gig on top of it. And we do it with joy because we understand that the world of early intervention pediatrics needs evidence in it. So we sweet talked the folks with speechtherapypd.com. And as a thank you giveaway, we have come up with a, a, a free pod course subscription. So once we hit 130 iTunes written reviews, we're going to pull another name out of the hat, probably with the assistance of an ever so handsome goose and a bear. And that person will get a free PodCourse subscription. So over 175 hours of continuing ed plus 19 new continuing hours each month. And there's a new episode every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, every other Thursday, and the short course, nine series long, all things ethics with Elise. And that's our way of giving back. So thank you. So please keep the reviews coming. We only have a few more to go, but once we hit 130, then we will pull that name out of a hat. Happy 2020. Thank you for joining us on the journey. And Seriously, y'all rock. Thank you. Hey, so by now, I'm hoping that you've heard about the brand new PodCore subscription that Speech Therapy PD has rolled out. For $79 a month, you get over 175 hours of ASHA continuing education with 19 new episodes a month. That's fantastic. Well, they want to make sure that you also know we have a brand new coupon code. So the coupon code is F as in first, B as in bite, followed by the number 20, FB20. And that brand new coupon code will give you $20 off the PodCourse subscription. So you get 175 hours of continuing ed plus an average of 19 new hours a month, all for $59 a year. And we cover everything from early intervention to schools to adults to ethics. So be sure to type in F as in first, B as in bite, and then the number's 20. Enjoy your coupon, or as my kin folks say, enjoy that coupon. Hi folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina and a guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts. To break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy joy and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. 
So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Hello and welcome back, y'all. Okay, so today's episode is an outgrowth of an idea from episode number 109, The Journey of Cochlear Implants with Dr. Dakota Sharp, AUD, CCA, and host of our sister podcast pod course, On the Ear. Because in that episode, we mentioned ever so briefly the branch of speech therapy geared towards rehabbing individuals with hearing loss um, via audio-verbal therapy. Okay. We're going to use some terms that I honestly don't know how to pronounce them and what they mean because, y'all, I am a Virginia girl, and the schools that I attended were amazing, but they didn't focus on the AVT and LISL. They focused on dysphagia and aphasia. And as grad schools work, they all have a specialty driven by the research of the faculty that works there, which is why when I moved to South Carolina, I was like blown away to hear about all these new terms in our field that I had never heard before. So let me tell you how I met today's guest, Janine Entwistle Viola. Did I do it right? Violi, but close. Violi, yes, almost, so close. MSP, CCC, SLP, LISL certified ABT. Y'all, when I knew her, she was just Janine, so fair. (laughs) Um, When we met, I had just had Baby Bear. I mean, I think he was still in his helmet. And um, I was working PRM at a local hospital two days a week while working three days a week in the world of early intervention. And she was a second year grad student interning at the same hospital. She was an absolute joy and was so gracious. She wasn't my intern, but you know, we still interact and sit next to each other to type our notes. And I was blown away when she said she wanted to specialize in AVT. I was humbled because like I hadn't even heard of this branch of our field that she spoke so passionately about. Y'all, Janine is the embodiment of the notion that we need to learn from our peers, even those younger than us, because ageism is a thing. So chuck ageism to the side. All right. So we kept in touch over the years. Thank you, social media and Instagram and Facebook. And she recently shared that she achieved her long sought after goal. And I thought, yes, let's shine her light. Because in case you haven't figured it out, one of my favorite things to do is to be a pathfinder to help other people share their gifts. So here we are. So hi, hello. I'm so happy you're here and I'm ridiculously proud of you. And now I just want to know, is sweet Dennis going to be a therapy dog? Because he, I need to cuddle with him. (laughs) I hope so. He will be, when he's 12 months, I think I can start the therapy dog process. So that's the plan. I would love that to volunteer at a local hospital with him. Nice. Okay, y'all, so y'all don't know, but Dennis is, he's the perfect golden doodle and he's fluffy and cuddly and yeah. (laughs) I'm girl crushing Dennis because, you know, dog just peed on my laptop while hugging Christian and I feel like Dennis wouldn't make the same bad choices. (laughs) No, he does not make those choices. (laughs) Uh, I blame her Lasix, bless her heart. Okay, so I, we have so many questions, but, and I know we'll, we'll get to them, but tell us a little bit about you. How did you become a speech pathologist? How did you pick this specific branch? Fill us in on the backstory, lady. Well, thank you, Michelle, for having me. I'm excited to get to catch up with you. So I started off with an interest in speech pathology from actually my mom introduced me to the field and she's a physical therapist. And so I started shadowing speech pathologists in high school and then knew going to undergrad that I wanted to pursue speech pathology as a career. So I did, my major was in speech language and hearing sciences from the University of Connecticut. And then after that, I moved down south, which is why I've stayed down here um, at the University of South Carolina, where I did my master's degree. And then I finished my master's degree with as part of the auditory verbal therapy track. So with an interest in working with children and families, um, the children who are deaf and hard of hearing. So then I went on to completing my CF with a private practice in Lexington, South Carolina, and moved up to North Carolina with my now husband and live in Winston-Salem and 
continuing to work with a private practice. And I'm right now working with pediatric speech and language services. And they, the two owners of the company are both also LISL certified. So I've had a lot of great support through them and um, communicating with the other therapists locally and with the local cochlear implant teams. That's awesome. How is there like a registry? Because I know that there's a registry if you are looking to see if you can find like a BCSS specialist near you. Is there a registry for the LISL certified SLPs? Yes. So you have to go through the AG Bell Academy and that's how you get the certification to become a listening and spoken language specialist. You have to meet the requirements through the AG Bell Academy and pass the exam. So there is a LISL look up if you go on the AG Bell Academy website. A little look up. I love that. Okay. <laughs> find one in your have... area. <laughs> yes. Okay. But like how many are, are there out there? Not that many. It's an international certification. So they do global um, courses and conferences. And the most recent one they had to do online because of COVID, but there was, they have it all over the world. Um, and there's a, there's a good bit. There's a handful in North Carolina Chapel Hill, the Children's Cochlear Implant Center is absolutely incredible. And they have some of the best of the best people in the state there. Um, And there's less in South Carolina, but I think that has to do with the amount of cochlear implant teams and just the resources and funding available. Mm. Yeah, because I know know when I looked, when I was starting my BCSS application journey, there was like less than 300 BCSS SLPs out there. And I know that that's grown, but like, I feel like y'all, there might be a little bit less of y'all. <laughs> so. I know there's less than 50 in the state. I know there's a lot less than that in South Carolina. Yeah. Oh, and most oh of them God. are either at MUSC or USC. Yes. So folks, if you want to pursue this, you can probably find an amazing job in one of the Carolinas. Hint, hint, hint. (laughs) Okay. So then let's take it from the top. What is the process for becoming an auditory verbal therapist? What does that mean? And can anyone get certified? So not anyone, not just anyone can get certified. You actually have to have certain academic requirements. So that is either a bachelor's degree or a master's degree in audiology, speech pathology, or deaf education. Um, And that was something that I didn't know. I didn't know that I had to go to speech pathology in order to become an auditory verbal therapist. So you can actually, as long as you have a background in deaf education, working with children who are deaf and hard of hearing, and have some, you know, degree in that area, you can actually apply for the LISL certification. Okay. Well, okay. So what is, what is auditory verbal therapist mean? So there are two different types, which you may or may not know. So I list, so the acronym LISLs is a listening and spoken language specialist. And then within that, there are two subcategories, and that's where the ABT comes into play. So you can, while having the same certification as a listening and spoken language professional, you can either be a certified auditory verbal therapist or a certified auditory verbal educator. So the acronyms are LSLS Cert ABT or LSLS Cert AV Ed. And those differences have to do with the modality of therapy. I don't know if that's the right word, but it's more so auditory verbal therapy is more one on one where you're working with the parents, you're promoting early diagnosis of hearing loss, you're having one on one therapy using the technology, whether it's a hearing aid, a cochlear implant or a bone anchored hearing aid, a Baja. And that- I just learned what Baja was. <laughs> I know what a Baja was. Thank Yay. you, Dakota. Yay! <laughs> Sorry, I was very pl- proud of myself for learning that. <laughs> well, that's a that's something that not everybody knows what those are. So that's um that's another one of the options for amplification for children um, who are deaf or hard of hearing. And so the auditory verbal therapy route, which is the one that I'm more familiar with, since that's the certification that I have, 
is working with the parents and the caregivers. So you're really the main principles of that are guiding and coaching parents. So it's a lot of what we do overlapping Michelle with um, early intervention because the parents are the primary teachers for the child. And so what you're doing as an auditory verbal therapist is helping guide and coach these parents to use techniques and strategies for developing listening and spoken language. Okay. So you, you start with the listening spoken language. Is that what the LISL is? Yes. It's called listening and spoken language specialist. So someone who is a LISL is a professional that's met the criteria through the AG Bell Academy and they pass the exam. And so they either will obtain, based on what they applied for, they can either be designated a certified auditory verbal therapist or the auditory verbal educator. And the biggest difference, I think, from what I've, when I've talked to people, it seems like the, the therapist get, it is based on the number of experience hours that you have, that you have to have a certain requirement in, in order to apply. And so auditory verbal educators can work with children in the school system where the parents may not be present. The parents might come, but they are, they're involved as much as possible in their child's language and listening development, but it's not directly working one-on-one. So they might be providing parent support, support services for children in schools. Um, and so it's really promoting mainstream education for kids who are deaf and hard of hearing. And so some of these therapists will work in the school systems with children. Okay. I, I take away the ABT part, um, the auditory verbal therapist, that, that there's a lot more emphasis on the coaching side, which is why it works so excellent within the framework of early intervention. Yes. And that's where even from graduate school, I didn't feel like just going into ABT because I was so comfortable with working with parents and having them involved in sessions. I feel like early intervention wasn't any different for me. It wasn't hard to go into because I was already so comfortable working with parents and working with the caregivers. But how cool is that? Because, I mean, I distinctly remember, I've seen this shift away from when I was in grad school, we would take the kids and leave the parents, right? Like it was direct one-to-one services with the patient. And then you'd have like a brief synopsis interaction afterwards with the family. Hey, we worked on this. This is their homework for the week, right? But the huge shift towards our focus is on parent coaching and parent engagement. The outcomes are so much more profound. And I feel like you quantifiably shrink the duration of services by via that approach. But that's hard. That's hard because for those of us that are older that were trained one way to go from direct service delivery model to parent coaching and engagement, that's a huge mind shift. So that's a conversation for another day. Absolutely. <laughs> that's okay. Okay. All right. So so here's how <laughs> here's how I interacted with ABT the first time and you'll appreciate the honesty of this. All right. I, I got a referral for a kid um, and I was working um, home health early intervention for a private practice. I feel like the same private practice that you once upon the time worked for. And um, I'm out there doing um, an eval with a little one who is bilingual and had down syndrome. And they called me in because there was um, feeding issues. Right. Uh, and then I get there and come to find out the child is, has moderate to severe hearing loss, right? And they've asked me to come out to address the pediatric feeding component, right? And I'm like, well, you, you need an additional therapist. So through the interpreter, who was amazing, oh my gosh, I love this interpreter. Um, you know, there I am trying to do a little bit on language, kind of feel out where the kiddo's at while trying to chase the underlying, I think he ended up having celiac disease, which is one of the huge um, components. The mother told the interpreter that I was doing therapy wrong, that the child needed to sit in his high chair and I needed to cover my mouth and say a word and have him repeat the word back to me 
before he got a toy. And I mean, the kiddo that I was working with was a little guy with Down syndrome. I didn't speak Spanish. I only speak English and bad English. And he was cognitively between 12 and 15 months. I mean, not the candidate to sit in a chair. And I was like, what type of therapy are you talking about? And then that's when they told me that it was AVT. And I had to do it like our mutual friend who works at the university. I was like, I don't think that's how this works. So I called over to USC and I talked to um, your former professor who mentored me. And she goes, no, 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 no. That's There's a lot of communication breakdowns. But that was my first experience with AVT. And my takeaway was that kids got strapped in high chairs and you withheld toys until they said a word, which was totally wrong. But what actually happens in the session? We'll circle back around to the certification process, but like what what actually what does it actually look like? How does AVT help kids? So the the foundation principles of auditory verbal therapy is to help develop spoken language through listening. So based on your story, it sounds like they were using one of the techniques called the hand cue where you cover your mouth and that's not something that's done as frequently as much anymore, it seems like. The, the important part about that is removing the visual cues because the thought is that children with hearing loss have been without sound. So say a child is born with a profound hearing loss. It's probably going to be 10 to 12 months before they get that cochlear implant. So they've had no access to sound from birth. So they're already behind, not only from not being able to hear in the womb, but then also from birth on. And while early identification and newborn hearing screeners are improving significantly, there's still a lot that these children are missing by the time they get, they're already missing almost a whole year's worth of listening practice by the time they get their device. And so the thought with that is that the brain can change so much. And with these devices, these kids can do amazing and they have amazing outcomes with whichever modality is chosen. And so from a listening and spoken language standpoint, the benefit of using removing visual cues first is to focus the to help the brain focus on listening. So the goal is listen first, then see it, then hear it again. And that can be a great strategy for these kids. And a lot of what auditory verbal therapy looks like with little ones is very much similar to early intervention. It's trying to incorporate listening practice and detection and identification of words and sounds and pairing that with meaning in natural learning experiences. So that might look like a parent, so the therapist coaching the parent and the parent working on cueing the child to listen. So you might use some different learning to listen sounds with toys for little ones. And that is basically a fancy term for the sound that goes along with the animal or the vehicle, or there are um, a lot of different ones. And so kind of cueing the child to listen and getting their attention through listening first and then presenting the sound and seeing how do they respond to it. So in your story, it sounds like they were trying to get the child to listen first, detect the sound, indicate that they heard something, or if they're able to repeat and then show the toy that it might be. So you're really making the brain focus on the listening versus the visual system. Um, and it's not that visuals can't be used. It's just that the focus should, needs to be on listening first to help the brain develop and focus in on that auditory signal that's coming in that's so new to them. So the whole emphasis of AVT is teaching the brain how to hear and process the sounds that are new, right? Like that was what I took away, which I thought that was so profound. And then with Bear, I mean, he didn't hear for two years, right? Like, so as, as a mom of a child that had significant hearing loss, it was amazing to me to see his growth through speech therapy and early intervention, right? But Absolutely. Um, that's, I mean, you know, hey, he's still in our kid, but bless his little heart. He can say red and whoop his brother in Uno now. Oh, that's <laughs> so, great. He, he hasn't quite ungeneralized the the extent of the er, but like, I mean, I'm just happy he's doing the er, baby. But like, is that is that a good synopsis of it? Is that you're teaching the brain how to hear to recreate? 
Yes. And so with ABT, that's just one of the modalities for children with hearing loss. ABT focuses more on the listening component of therapy and having the child listen first in order to help the brain process, whether it's using a hearing aid, a Baja, or a cochlear implant. But I think another thing to mention with ABT is that our role as providers is so important that we are collaborating with the families and using ongoing assessment to track progress, to promote early identification in kids, and then make sure that they are getting um, appropriate audiological management and follow-up with their audiologist, um, and just helping them use hearing as their primary sensory modality. And that doesn't mean visual cues are not part of that, but the primary sensory modality is listening and hearing in order to develop spoken language. And so these are families where if the parent's goal for their child is to learn to listen and talk, this can be a great approach for them. But it's really what the parent values and what they want for their child. This is, this is, this is very, so I promise we'll get back to the certification process, but like, what does, what does a typical session look like for you? Take me through that. Describe that to me. Well, it depends. Do you want to know about a session with a younger child or a session with an older child? Let's do both, but let's start with the tiny humans because they're my peeps. (laughs) (laughs) So for, for the little ones, it'll, it'll focus on collaborating with the parents. So recapping, how did things go in the past week? discussing some of the strategies and techniques that may have worked or maybe didn't work. Um, We want to make sure that the sessions start out with a listening check to make sure that the the devices are working because you don't want to do all What does that look like? With a listening check? Yeah, what does that mean? So that might mean we are checking the technology to make sure that the microphone is working properly, the Cochlear implant companies and hearing aid companies provide families with a listening check, which is headphones that you can check the microphone of the cochlear implant. And you can also listen to the, to the hearing aids to make sure the sound quality sounds okay. Um, there, we will do what's called the Link 6 sound test. So that is six different sounds that go across the speech frequency range from low to high. And that Link 6 sound test can give us information if a child is hearing across the speech frequency range or not. So are they responding to sound? So for my older children, they would repeat them for me. So we would start the session with doing the Ling 6 sound test. And for the little ones, we might do it where they're not repeating, but they're turning their head and they're indicating that they heard that sound. Um, And then, so therapy sessions might incorporate some play on the floor with preferred toys, It includes a lot of singing. It includes um, lots and lots of book reading. Very important with books. Books with repetition are great. There are a lot of techniques that we will use. For example, pause time, letting the child have time to process. We might be singing a song and pausing and seeing, do they start to try to fill in the pause to that? Do they anticipate what's coming next? Are they trying to make any sound approximations based on what they hear? A lot of times, if based on sound development, you're not going to hear the exact sounds produced, but you might hear a child imitate some durational patterns, or they might imitate some pitch, so the super super segmentals of speech. Um, So for little ones, it's a lot like early intervention where we are encouraging that one-on-one interaction, the parent is really involved, and I would be coaching the parent through different strategies and techniques to try with their child. And we would focus on these different principles of auditory verbal therapy, in addition to parent education and collaborating as a team, whether it's with the IFSP team, if it's with a local cochlear implant team and the audiologist. Here in North Carolina, we have early learning sensory support providers who are trained in working with children who are deaf or hard of hearing. And so they're part of our IFSP team. And so these that's a free service to families here that I collaborate with them a lot. And we're working on listening, spoken language, cognitive, and um, receptive communication goals. Um, I just got to say, I'm 
blown away because you're living, eating, breathing into professional practice by working with all <laughs> these different partners. And like, that I is something love. I know, but that's something that I feel like is so lost in our world that people like you're, you're collaborating with the audiologist right out the gate. I mean, you know, firsthand, I'm confident the amazing cochlear um the team that's the otolaryngologist then you have to interface with their nurse practitioners their their pas their nurses and also i'm kind of slightly overwhelmed by i'm just imagining a massive data check sheet that you have to keep track of is there as much paperwork as i think that there is because i'm feeling slightly concerned about the paperwork <laughs> well, i don't think it's it doesn't see it's not that much different compared to any other speech therapy session I have, because I have a mixture of children with hearing loss on my caseload and children in early intervention. And I work with some children for just articulation. Um, so it really, it's, it's really not that different. Okay. Cause I'm just like, whew, that's a lot. <laughs> well, the focus okay. is on some different, you're really looking for their responses to sounds as they first get their cochlear implant or when they have their hearing aids for the first time. Because if they're not hearing adequately, they're not going to develop speech and language appropriately. Like you were saying with your own child, you have that firsthand experience while he didn't have, I'm guessing he had more of a conductive hearing loss from ear infections. Kids who are hearing sound muffled, like it's underwater, they're still hearing, but they're not hearing clearly. And so that really does impact speech and language development. Yep. Yep. He was um, bilateral conductive hearing loss, but he was preemie with a helmet. He had, um, let's see, what all has he had? He's due for superglottoplasty, but he's had his adenoids out, his palatine tonsils out, um, um, two, three rounds of tubes, I think. Oh, yeah. Um, and yeah, I'm like, I've lost track of how many sets of tubes this kid has had in his head. And um, he's still in OT for torticollis. Oh, wow. But, um, well, we had three months of bed rest. And then he came out with um, symmetrical brachiocephaly with the back of his skull because he was wedged on my pelvic floor. Um and he, he was, he was a feisty one, this child of mine. Um, so as soon as he came out, he came out with a flathead. And so <laughs> we pretty much came like, it was like, oof, he's going to get a helmet. And then they lost the helmet in the mail. <laughs> oh no. I can't make that up. I spent $1,200 on the helmet and they lost it in the mail and it took an extra week to get there. I was not a happy mommy, but, um, and I've kept that helmet and I'm going to give it to him as a present when he gets married and has a kid that will be his, this, it smells like a jock strap or what I would imagine a jock strap to smell like. But um, y'all, if you've never had your own tiny human and a helmet, it's not a pretty smell. But because of all of that, he had um, craniofacial structure issues, which um, uh, led to exacerbation and conductive hearing loss because of ear infections. But his, his I mean... Premies tubes don't, the eustachian tubes don't grow where they should and they don't angle down um, at the rate. So, y'all, he was a 35 weeker. So, when you're looking at the kids on your caseloads, I have heard numerous parents tell me, well, they, you know, if I call their name, they hear me. And I'm like, yes. But that does not necessarily mean that they're hearing all of the frequencies that they need to hear. And if they pass the newborn hearing test, that does not necessarily mean that they would pass a subsequent hearing assessment at eight months of age or at 13 months of age. So I am on this side of it from having met you all those years ago to where I am now. If I have a child on my caseload and I get called in for feeding therapy, um, especially my little ones that have a cleft, right? Um, I am very, very quick to make sure that I also ask for a referral to a certified AVT therapist because I know enough to know that I don't know what it is that y'all do, but you are highly skilled and trained at it. And I need to get that child set for success. And Insurance will allow for two speech pathologists to treat a child. So, I mean, I've worked hands in hands. I'm thinking of one particular little guy um, 
that had a uh, family um, hearing loss, sensory neural hearing loss. Was He was a third generation family member to have it, but he was born with a cleft of his lip that went up a um, unilateral cleft that included his pretty extensively his left nostril. Um, that was, I was... It, totally blown away by how much his nose was involved in this one, actually. Um, and, you know, we worked on appropriate label seal for PO intake, but I ever so quickly, as soon as I got in, pulled in an AVT therapist to work on sounds right out the gate because I can't, I don't know the magical things that you do. Um, I like to do the thing that I do and then give him back. <laughs> but that's, that's, I think that's so cool that we can work collaboratively together. Okay. So you tell me about the, what you do with the tiny humans, but with the bigger kids, I, that's not, I don't know anything about what that looks like because I don't work with older, more advanced children. So what does an ABT session look like for an older kid? So for an older kid, they will definitely be able to sit and focus during the session. Still use a lot of games of interest to the child, but the focus is more on helping them develop language skills that are more complex. So for my older kids, that might mean producing articles in speech, producing grammatical like the function words. words. Yes, the function. Like the things that are harder to overhear because with hearing loss, overhearing and filling in what was missed is a challenge. So for older children, it's not so much of just detecting the sound, but maybe working on focused listening practice, like a kid what? focused listening practice. So we what might do things like speech babble. So there's different, do you remember the good old manner place in voicing? Yes. Differences. Okay. So I do actually. (laughs) So that might mean, say a child didn't get amplification until they were a little bit older. So they hadn't been hearing those sounds clearly. I've actually worked with some kids specifically on practicing listening in more complex and difficult situations. So that might mean we do some speech babble with consonants varying by manner. So that would be one of the easiest. And then there's a hierarchy where we get towards the more difficult consonants to hear the difference between. So like a P, T, K, P, T, or K, as we would say it, pretend it's. <laughs> but those are, those are harder to hear. And so the little changes and how those speech sounds vary can, if they're not watching you, it can be very hard to hear the difference between those sounds. Because even though everybody says, oh, I don't use lip reading cues. Everybody uses their own to some degree. And that doesn't mean that children or adults who are deaf or hard of hearing are master lip readers. That's also a common misconception. So just because they do use more visual cues doesn't mean that that's all they use. So there's kind of this combination of needing listening plus context plus visuals that really help. And so for my older kids, we're working on goals that are not only just about speech, but listening development. So hearing, listening to the little details and sentences. So that might look like critical elements, remembering, recalling what was heard. So I might say, okay, let's get the, if we're doing a sticker, I clearly remember with one of my kids, he loved making Christmas trees with and decorating them with stickers. So if we know that once the child knows the vocabulary, that might look like, okay, get the bell, the present, and the holly. And they would get all three things. And they might miss one of them because it's oftentimes harder to hear those little details. And that's something that is practiced in auditory verbal therapy. We're working on cognitive goals, language goals, and speech goals. Yeah, I'm just imagining that carrying over to like a classroom setting where the teacher's standing in the front of the classroom saying, all right, I need you all to pick out, you know, a number two pencil and a composition book, right? Exactly. How can they hear that with the the echoing? We had Jason on, um, oh my gosh, I think we had Jason on like a year and a half ago, year ago, and he was talking all about how the the location within a room 
and how the presentation in a room, how that impacts how a child hears and how little changes can be done to help set that kid up for success. And I, I have found that Christian needs it. Don't tell my husband I said that, but like we, he can't hear out of his right ear. Thank you, Army. So like he won't go get, you know, that fully assessed, but I have made subtle changes and it's improved. (laughs) That's that's Um, exactly right. It's, you have to wonder too, you know, if you're giving a child a direction like, Oh, Charlie, go stand behind Susie or go stand between so-and-so is first thing we have to know is, did they hear it? What did they hear? So with my older kids, that might look like they, if they answer a question incorrectly, or they look at me like I have 12 heads, I might say, well, what did you hear? To help them be able to piece that together and develop that self-advocacy to ask for repetition and to really train the brain to listen for those fine details of speech and language from what we're hearing that you or I kind of take for granted where they're they're having to filter out background noise. And as kids get older, now that technology is so prevalent and even with teletherapy, you know, being within that three foot listening bubble is so important for little ones. And as kids get older, they have, they're learning how to listen from a further distance. They're learning, they're having to increase that auditory demand where there's background noise and there's competing signals and they're having to listen on the phone, which is harder. It's a harder listening condition. So we'll actually sometimes practice those things depending. It's really individualized based on the child and where they're at, but we're really trying to just close that gap between their hearing age and their chronological age. So the chronological age being when they were born, how old they are, and the hearing age being when they got their devices and how long have they been using those devices consistently. So a child might be two years old, but they have a hearing age of 12 months. Oh, that's cool. I've never heard of that term before. It's pretty cool. That's so that's something to really consider because you can't always compare a child's language abilities to their chronological age if they were born with a profound hearing loss. So you're com- making more of these comparisons to their hearing age and find deciding, you know, where where are we at compared to their hearing age? And I use different scales like the auditory learning guide, the Bloom and Leahy. There are there's another one called the Castles is um with so that's the cottage acquisition scale of speech and language. I forget the exact acronym, what it stands for, but I know it's the cottage acquisition scales is what we call it, is the castles. And so that really dives deep into all these different language types and questions and nouns and modifiers and verb tenses and pronouns and just going so much more in depth than a general language assessment can do. Because oftentimes we really do have to dive deep into the nitty gritty with some of these older kids to find out where are their gaps in their language or their listening development and how can we get them and close that gap between their hearing age and that of their same age peers, their chronological age. Okay. So I'm just imagining how many kids I've messed up over the years. Um, thank you for that. Um, <laughs> okay. Cause in my head, I'm like, oh yeah, we just chalk it up to like, uh, it's a mild hearing loss, but then, you know, we proceed on with our handy dandy PLS five and it's terrible validity, specificity, sensitivity. And, you know, they're, we're, we're going through a standardized assessment because that's what we're taught to do. But if you've never, and I feel like I failed them, but I failed these kids unknowingly because I was not exposed to what AVT is or that it's an option out there. And I mean, I know as soon as I, I met you and I met the folks over, you know, at the university here in town, like I have, I have evolved and changed because that's what we needed. But prior to that, I wouldn't take into account you know, the level of hearing loss or the t- their hearing age, because I didn't know, I mean, I sure as anything didn't know that hearing age was a term until like now. So congratulations for um, educating me on of that. But, well, you don't know what you don't know. I mean, that's, yes, it's, and that's not, and that's, that would be the same thing for me. And I was thinking when you were saying you always tend to refer to somebody who specializes 
in listening and spoken language, I refer to someone who specializes in dysphagia and all that you do because that's not my area of expertise. So I need somebody else. I'm not going to say I I can do it all because I can't. I'll be perfectly honest with families when there are feeding concerns. I make those referrals appropriately because I I don't feel like I can be that person for them. Yes, but that's but I love the collaboration. I mean, yeah, y'all, it's okay to say, I suck. I don't know about this because it's not that we suck. It's that we just didn't have the exposure, um, self-deprecating humor. I'm working on trying to do less self-deprecating humor, but it's like ingrained in me and it's really, really hard to not do that. But I hear my kid brother, um, Uncle Efi, who's like 6'4 and giant. He's my kid brother and he's so big. <laughs> okay, so... We should probably now circle back around to what is the process to become LISL ABT certified? So it's a pretty extensive process. And it's one that if you are interested in it, it's best to start the process right after you finish your degree, which is what I was doing. Like during your CF year? Yes. Getting on that as soon as possible because the requirements and they keep changing the requirements. Um, if you go on the agbellacademy.org, they have all of the information. But I do know that the requirements for certification have changed and evolved over the years. So they have the most recent application packet. But that has what it looks like is a combination of after you finish your degree, that's when you can start to count clock hours. And there are a required number of continuing education hours that you need to receive in order to apply. So the process begins with meeting all the criteria in the application. You submit the application and you wait for a response from the academy. And once your application is approved, then you are allowed to take the exam, which is a standardized assessment now. I I remember some of our um, ABT professors had to go to like New York City to take it, or they could go to California and it was only offered in certain places worldwide. And now it's one of the criterion assessments that you can take anywhere. So I was able to take it locally in Winston-Salem, which was really nice. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yes. Because testing saving is legit. I know. I, I'm just, I was talking to somebody about taking their Praxis exam. And I remember taking the Praxis, walking outside and vomiting in a bush (gasps) because I was like, like I puked just straight up, like unabashedly the stress had eaten me up. Right. And the registrar for the assessment was like sitting outside at the table. He goes, a lot of kids puke in that bush. And I was like, that is the grossest thing ever. Well, right, because you you could be sitting next to somebody who's taking the MCAT or somebody who's, it's all different things. So yes, basically you do, once you get approval that you met all the criteria and everything is accurate and correct with the application, the academy will give you the green light to sign up for the exam. And so you need to pass the exam in order to officially become certified. How many hours did you have to take in continuing ed? It was 70 hours of continuing ed. I did more than that, but that's the minimum requirement. So what part of that includes observing a certified listening and spoken language specialist. So I actually spent time out in Wilmington with my the, the co-owner of my company and observed some of her sessions live just to gain some more experience. And so you have to do 10 hours observing somebody else who is already certified and they have to have their certification and it has to be active with um, AG Bell. And then- What do you mean active? So kind of like with ASHA, how you have an active membership, it's the same thing. So you have to recertify every so often and pay dues. Gotcha. Yeah. Cool. Yes, 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 yes. Like the BCSS, like you, you have to get certified and then you have to maintain so many continuing ed hours exactly. and doing things like that. Yeah. It's the same okay. thing. So we have certificate, we have a certain amount of certification out or sorry, continuing ed hours that we need in a certain time interval, similar to ASHA. And so in order to apply for the LISL exam, you have to have 70 hours of continuing education. And part of that is observing a LISL um, 
certified. Yeah. Uh-huh. And that can be online many- too. It doesn't have to be in person. Face to face. Mm-hmm. How many how many hours did you have to get like doing therapy? Doing so, do you say doing yeah. Lissell therapy or is it doing ABT therapy? What is the correct nomenclature? Um, I don't know if there's what would be the correct I say I would say it would be sessions with a focus of auditory verbal therapy. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Because it's cool. really it's a listening and spoken language session and you're the auditory verbal therapist and auditory verbal therapy is kind of that umbrella term for all of the principles that you're doing in the therapy session, like working with the parents and collaborating with the audiologist and promoting mainstream education and all of that. But I had to do, so it's 900 clock hours. Wow. Mm -hmm. So you have to have 900 hours and 750 have to be direct contact hours. So that I started and there's a certain, I don't know exactly what it would be now because I didn't count them, but you can count clinical practicum hours in your internship, a certain number, I think it's 75 towards your final amount. So you need to be doing 750 hours and 150 of those can be indirect hours. So not working directly with the family and the child, but doing maybe IEP meetings, um, meetings, assessments, anything like that. That's not direct therapy. So I would keep track. I started, my advice to anybody who's interested is start early and keep track of everything because it is very extensive. You have to have all this documentation. I mean, my application was hundreds of pages long just to have everything included because not only do you have the clinical hours that you're keeping track of, but you also have your continuing ed that you're keeping track of. You have mentored sessions. So, so you have to have 20 sessions, whether it's live or video recorded, they have to be observed and evaluated by somebody who has a listening and spoken language AVT or AV ed certification through the AG Bell Academy. So you have a mentor who is, you have 20 mentored sessions. So that's, that took a lot of courage for me because the initial ones, obviously coming out of grad school, they're very different than my sessions now. So the the whole purpose of that is to really develop your skills and get feedback from a mentor to be able to refine and change and just develop your overall skills as a therapist to become a better provider for families and kids. That is that is dedication and love. <laughs> it is. So like, it sure is. How, how many years did it take you to finish this thing, hon? So you have about three to five years. You cannot apply before it's been three full years. So you have to have three full years after your degree in order to be eligible to apply. And as far as I know, you cannot do more than five years. So you have to have it within that time frame. So you have a three to five year window after your degree to obtain all the requirements for the LISL application packet. So I did it in about three and a half, almost four. I started working in September of 2016 and passed my exam earlier this year. Yes, I was so proud of you. But now Thank I'm you. like, oh, my God, I feel like you earned like a really nice vacation for this completion. <laughs> it, it's definitely it's well worth it. But it's staying on top of it is really important, too. And I guess part of it can depend on luck with if you have the client um, clientele and the amount of hours because it is kind of a demand. It's a pressure to make sure you're getting all these hours. And so thankfully, with starting off in South Carolina, I had a pretty good amount of kids on my caseload that I was doing auditory verbal therapy sessions with. I had some that I was doing more of total communication. So some kids who use sign language that I didn't count towards my hours because that's not true auditory verbal therapy. I wouldn't have thought of that, but yes. So see, that's- I still work with those kiddos, but that wasn't part of my certification process. Um, 
so kiddos who are using more of a total communication approach. It's still a great experience and I love I love doing it. I'm not fluent in sign language. There are several, I'm sure plenty of auditory verbal therapists who are fluent in sign language, but there are so many different modalities like cued speech, American sign language, um, you know, to, that can supplement spoken language. And so it's really whatever the family, the parents want for their child. Um, that there's actually a, um, there's a different bill that's been going through state by state where they're trying to force, and I can't remember if it's an AG bell, um, bill or who's sponsoring the bill where they're trying to force all children, um, that are deaf or hard of hearing to, uh, learn sign language or to um, ensure that sign language is covered as their first language. And I've spoken to a couple of folks that were very unhappy about it because they said that's a personal choice. Um, that is a, that's a very deep personal choice. And while we should be given the option, um, it is a case by case scenario. And um, so if you're in a state, just look out for that bill. I mean, the wording is, on the surface, it looks great, but it's forcing people to make a decision that may not be what the individual wants, right? Well, so you'll that, have to send um, me that. I haven't heard of that. You'll have to send me that information. Yeah. I'd like to. I'd like to see it because Absolutely. really, the biggest thing with you know what our goal is as part of the team for a child who's recently diagnosed is giving the parents all of their options. It's not telling them this is what you need to do. It's educating them and giving them resources and information on all of their options so they can make the best informed decision for their child. And with sign language, sign language is a beautiful language. And we often counsel families and tell them, if your child's going to learn sign language, everybody in the family needs to know it. It's not something that the child learns and then the family needs to be able to communicate with their child. And that's with whatever language it is. The family needs to be able to communicate with that child. And so majority of children who are born deaf or hard of hearing are born to typical hearing parents. And so that's where a lot of families are choosing cochlear implants and hearing aids or Bajas for their kids and wanting spoken language outcomes for them, being able to learn to listen and talk but that's, it's completely a family choice. Yes. And I'll pull, um, Asha has a copy of the bill because they've, um, uh, backtrack part of advocacy y'all when you get involved with your state associations and you meet with Asha, Asha, um, has a state liaison for, um, the different regions. So North, Southeast, Northeast, Southeast, Midwest, Southwest, South, um, um, like California it has California and um, the West Coast, right? So um, they, when you meet with your small breakout groups, they specifically go through different uh, uh, different bills, um, and and this is one of them. Also, <laughs> Lead K, that's the name of it. Ash's motto bill, the Lead K bill, um, language equality and acquisition for deaf kids. That's what it stands for. Um, and Janine, I'm going to send it to you right now, um, in an email, but, um, yes. So, okay. Squirrel, look at this. How, of course we went somewhere with advocacy, right? Um, all right. Can you please talk to us a little bit about how, and we have like five minutes remaining. How has this changed you as a clinician and how you practice? So I feel that, the the certification is definitely something that I've worked very hard towards, and it's helped me have a focus and a specialty within speech pathology because it allows me to do something I love and be very passionate about while continuing to be a speech pathologist. So it's fun getting to be an auditory verbal therapist and a speech pathologist. But I think the certification process is great because you have mentors, and it doesn't only have to be one mentor. I've had many people mentoring me throughout this process and helping me and guiding me, whether it was watching one of my sessions or if it was um, 
I was observing them and just collaborating with them, I feel like it's really helped me become a better clinician and kept me learning. So not just finishing graduate school and then forgetting all the speech acoustics information. I'm constantly using speech acoustics all the time. And I'm thinking, oh, okay, I'm problem solving. And that's the fun part. It's not just, oh, child's not responding to the child is making an error with the vowel E and U. Well, I know with AB, with my knowledge of auditory verbal therapy and speech acoustics, I know that the vowels E and U have the same first formant and different second formants. And I'm constantly thinking from a speech acoustic standpoint to incorporate that with speech pathology and articulation and morphology, all of that. So it's really kept me learning past grad school. And I think that's something that I really knew I wanted to do going into the field of speech therapy. I knew I was always going to be learning, but having that certification and continuously working towards it has helped me become a better therapist because I've had the mentors and guiding. My primary mentor has been amazing who helped me get to where I am and getting the feedback and being able to collaborate with someone who's already been through the process as well to become a better clinician because I'm always open to constructive feedback and I know I'm never going to be perfect. I don't want to ever be perfect because I don't think there is such thing. So I just, no, I know I'm going individualized. It, it, sorry. I was just thinking it'd be boring to be perfect. That's Very the, boring. the whole, yes, yes, no, let's, let's take our flawed selves and keep pursuing higher ed. <laughs> well, and one of your questions earlier was what does a session look like? And I don't feel like I was able to give you a very clear answer because they're all individualized. And that's something I love too, is I can use this knowledge to make individualized decisions, whether it's we have a child with a progressive hearing loss do, and I'm a part of the team helping to decide, is a cochlear implant necessary right now? Or can we wait? Um, how is the child doing with their hearing aids? And is it providing enough access or do we need to, to re reprogram? So I'll do some diagnostic therapy and be able to communicate with the audiologist to say, hey, I have concerns with X, Y, and Z. And then they can take that information and use it in sessions, whether it's to do an audiogram and get a, you know, aided hearing test or unaided, or if it's to map their cochlear implant. You make me want to study more, woman. <laughs> <laughs> that, but it, and that's not to say it doesn't come with a lot of work because the speech acoustic side of things it isn't as easy to, you know, it's not concrete memorization. Well, I guess it could be, but it's something that I get to actually use throughout the day. So it's become something that is just general knowledge for me versus having to memorize specific formants. Like I'm actually getting to implement that and use it and think about it. So that's, that has definitely been helpful for me to become, be a better therapist and just having the knowledge of listening and spoken language development. And there are some great evidence-based resources that have been put out. And just having that and collaborating as a team, I feel like has made me a better clinician. And I know I will always continue to be learning. There's big difference between Janine as a CF and Janine now. And I can only imagine, I've only been working, what, four years? So I can only imagine 10 years from now what that's going to look like, the difference. So... I certainly don't know it all, but I'm I'm learning and continuously trying to be better. And that's through the families and the kids I work with as well. A lot of it is experience. Let's let's get Dennis certified because yes. I'm living vicariously <laughs> through you to make Dennis a um a therapy dog. Because dog, let's face it, dog ain't gonna cut it, bless her little Lasix cardiac bed self. But um <laughs> yeah, she's poor baby. Well, Dennis oh helps stars. out in my therapy sessions and he'll do high fives and tricks and we work on articulation. If he barks, we work on listening. Oh, did you hear that? Listen. <laughs> what did you hear? <laughs> it's been fun. <laughs> He's on his way. Oh my gosh. Yes. Okay. All right. I have to switch over to questions, but um, really quick, if someone has an additional question specifically for you, how can they reach you friend? So they can email me my, do you want me to say my email? Yes, please. Okay. 
My email is J-E-N-I-N-E-S-L-P at gmail.com. And that's my shorter one because my maiden name is ridiculously long. So I've, I've switched over to my work email, but they can email me at any time. I mean, I have, I have Facebook, I have LinkedIn. You can, I'm on the ASHA and the AG Bell registry. So that should have all of my information on it as well. Most excellent. Well, thank you. Um, um, I am, I am grateful for you for your dedication and for inspiring others and just you 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 rock. Hold on one <laughs> second. Let me switch this to questions, okay? Okay. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The Alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Mm-hmm.